In my recent interview with Jonas Koffler, one of the co-authors of a new book called Hustle, The Power to Change Your Life with Money, Meaning, and Momentum, we discuss that now more than ever how it is important for people to take control of their destiny. Our interview dives into the political, social, and economic reason behind why the American dream seems like a distant dream. I encourage you to listen to and take notes about what Jonas says in this book because it could change your life significantly. For more information about the book and Hustle Movement, go to hustlegeneration.com. Thank you. And here's your host, Greg Voison. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. I want to thank all of my listeners who come back again and again uh, from around the world to listen to the words of wisdom from our authors. And today joining me is Richard Barrett. He's joining us from Italy. And we did an interview with Richard about three weeks ago on his book called The New Psychology of Human Well-Being. And I invited Richard back uh, to speak with our listeners again uh, regarding two of his books, one, The Metrics of Human Consciousness, and the other, The Values-Driven Organization, Unleashing Human Potential for Performance and Profit. Good day to you, Richard. Good day to you, Greg. Thanks for being on. Well, Richard Barrett, for those of you who do or don't know him, you can basically just go to www.richardbarrett.net to learn more, or you can go to valuescenter.com. He's an internationally recognized thought leader on values, culture, and leadership in business and society. Um, he didn't want me to say much more about him. If you really want to learn, just go to the internet and type his name in. He's going to come up, let me tell you. So, Richard, um, on this, this book called The Metrics of Human Consciousness, um, a fascinating little book. Uh, it's actually under self-improvement for those people who are out there. Um, the book can be obtained uh, through Amazon and any of your best booksellers. But at the preface of the book, um, actually Mark Gaffini, Dr. Mark Gaffini wrote, um, you guys were at a conference on conscious capitalism and you met Mark and Zach and Ken Wilber and all the founders for the Center of Integral Wisdom. And you guys... You decided to take on the task of measuring the consciousness of the unique self. First, for my listeners, can you define unique self? And then how would you go about attempting to measure it? Well, um, unique self was a, is a concept that goes back quite some time, but has been popularized recently by, by Mark Gaffney. So what basically Mark is saying is, you know, that we're all souls having human experience, um, and um, the uh, ego is the false self, it's the mask we wear to get our needs met in this um, material dimension of existence, whereas the true self is the soul self, and it's the the sense of being an individuated aspect of a universal energy field and and, and at one level we share that uh, common um, heritage. Uh, so that's the true self. Now the unique self is is the true self plus your unique gifts and talents. So at some level, at the soul level, we all share the same values but we all have different um, and unique gifts. And so... Um, that is, uh, each person has this true self, and, which we all share, and this unique self, which is uh, everything, everybody's different. Everybody's got gifts and talents. So, uh, in the metrics of human consciousness, I actually describe um, the process by which 
uh, we measure consciousness and uh, listeners uh, can uh, actually go in and um, measure their own consciousness free of charge. It's very easy to do. You go to valuescenter.com, that's all one word, and center is C-N-T-R-E.com, slash P, as in Peter, V as in vehicle, uh, A as in uh, assessment. So valuescenter.com com slash pva and you will be asked some questions it takes two minutes um and then you get a feedback showing you um why what, what levels of consciousness your values lie and that's just a simple uh demonstration of the idea that we we operate at different levels of consciousness and as we grow and develop we move up through these levels of consciousness and you can see where your levels of consciousness are right now. A year or two from now, it may be slightly different. So um, that's one way you can get into the whole concept of understanding what it means to measure consciousness. Well, that's really good that you're offering that free tool and assessment. And again, it's Values Center, C-E-N-T-R-E, P-V-A, uh, and then answer those questions, and you'll get an assessment back uh, immediately. You'll get feedback. Now, you know, you obviously are part of this Center for Integral Wisdom as well, and that's, you know, Ken Wilbur. And Ken has probably done more than anybody that I know in attempting to measure consciousness in lines and levels. How does your metrics of human consciousness align with the work that's being done at Integral Wisdom, because I do know that many of my listeners are going to be well aware of the work that Wilbur has done. Well, to my knowledge, um, Wilbur does not have a methodology for measuring consciousness. Uh, he, I mean, Ken has made some amazing contributions to um, our current understanding, but um, nowhere does he uh, talk about any measurement tools for as far as consciousness. You can read his books and you can get an idea. And he compares, he compares different models. And now the model that I put out there, you won't find in Ken Wilber's writings because this model has really come online uh, and has become really popular only in recent years, although I started mapping the values and measuring consciousness 20 years ago. And so um, so you'll find uh, some various uh, ideas out there about stages of development, states of, de- states of consciousness, etc. Um, the model that I put forward um, is... Uh, is the seven levels model. It, you grow in uh, stages of development. So I also call it the stages, seven stages of psychological development, which we discussed in the last program, by the way, um, when we talked about a new psychology of human well-being. Mm-hmm. But actually, the seven levels of consciousness is something that I, I, uh, I created and uh, developed out of Maslow's hierarchy um, about 20 years ago. And we've been using that um, that model and the tools was called the cultural transformation tools to measure consciousness um, of individuals, organizations, and even uh, nations. We map the values of 26 different nations. So um, that's uh, it's unique uh, model but, but there is, the, but there that Richard, links to many other models. Yeah, there is one significant difference, and you mentioned it in this book, 
And that is that it differs from other models in one important way, is it looks at the development through the lens of the ego-soul dynamic. And I think for our listeners who maybe didn't hear the podcast on the new psychology of human well-being, um, explain, if you will, that dynamic, because that is probably the difference, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, it, is, it is the only uh, model, um, to my knowledge, that actually explains who we are from an ego-soul perspective. And the reason I wrote um, A New Psychology of Human Wellbeing, I wanted to bring the concept of the soul back to the center of psychology because psyche actually means soul. So, um, in fact, what happened is from, uh, if you go back to Carl Jung or Roberto Asagioli who invented psychosynthesis and even Maslow, they all had an understanding of that inner core or the soul and they talked about it. But from that time, roughly around 1960s, the, the the soul has disappeared from psychology. It's become a cognitive science, mostly because um, it, it's being uh, research is being done in the academic world, and the academic world does not accept the soul. And so um, the soul has got left out. And I wanted to bring it back front and center. So. So, so the, the seven stages of psychological development is, and the seven levels of consciousness model actually are a reflection of ego-soul dynamics because we are born as souls and if we are, follow all the stages of psychological development, we will die as souls. But in the meantime, we grow up and learn to be in this material world uh, through, uh, through having an ego, which is created by the soul. Uh, if we get stuck in ego consciousness, we never get back to soul consciousness. But if you manage to grow and develop through the upper stages of development, you will get back to living in soul consciousness. Well, so that brings me to this question of this, this three-dimensional world that most of us think we live in and maybe have some vague awareness of this fourth dimensional energetic world as you talk about our souls. How, did you, how would you advise our listeners today to become more aware of this fourth dimensional world that you reference in this book? Because that is what we're, I would think, of. spiritual beings are attempting to do, is get in touch with that soul dynamic. Well, you know, I think the first thing is to really get to a deeper understanding of who we are um, because we think we live in this three-dimensional material world uh, and in fact three-dimensional material world is a property of our senses it's not a property of the world we live in we live in a much larger energetic world you see um, uh, our senses are so limited because we only recognize certain frequencies of vibration and then we turn those frequencies into sound, smell, taste, touch, uh, uh, colors, etc. But we, we, we can only see a very, very, we, we can only uh, perceive a very small uh, range of frequencies. Um, and that gives us the impression that we're living in the material world. Well, actually, we live in a much larger energetic world where there are many, many more frequencies of vibration. And um, the uh, so, so we're not aware of this larger uh, dimension of who we are. Um, Maslow once said, you know, the non-mathematician is seized 
by a mysterious shuddering when he hears of four-dimensional things by a feeling that is not unlike the occult. But there is no more commonplace statement that the world we live in is a four-dimensional continuum. So, my, so, so Einstein really got that. He, he understood that, that. And so basically we're talking about the quantum world. The soul lives in the quantum world. It decides to incarnate in, in a physical body. And what it does now, it... it, it it, repre it represses the uh, to be able to in get into a physical body. It represses the, all of the frequencies of vibration that it normally perceives and uh, and enters into the body and allows the body to uh, operate uh, on this reduced set of frequencies. It's like a like a radio. You know, you you tune in your radio, and so if you've got a very poor, cheap radio, you can only tune in to say. Uh, 20 different stations. If you've got a super-duper uh, radio, um, AM, FM, you can probably tune in to two or 300 stations. Well, that's exactly the difference between the ego and the soul. The soul lives in this fourth-dimensional energetic world, and the ego lives in this three-dimensional material world, and that world is a property of our senses. It's not a property of the world. So, Richard, how much of your work might have been, or is it, this is just a curiosity, actually, because I didn't see any mention did did David Bohm have any influence on you at all? Because now that I'm listening to you, I'm sitting here and reflecting back on Bohm, and I'm going, geez, there's got to be some influence from Bohm. Yeah, absolutely. You know what? I, I, I have been reading, uh, <laughs> I was going to say wildly, but yeah, wildly and widely uh, all my life. Mm -hmm. And, uh you know, I've reached uh, uh, a ripe old age of a very, very young 71, and I couldn't have written that book, uh, A New Psychology of Human Wellbeing, before this time because I wouldn't have lived through all of these stages of development and uh, I would have been uh, missing something. So, um, so yes, uh, David Bohm's uh, unfolding, enfolding uh, is, is actually a sort of a... You know, we, how the soul uh, comes into this world, it, it sort of uh, it takes out of its conscious awareness um, this larger dimension of reality. And, and as we grow and develop, we get past the ego stages, which are around 24, 25 years old. We've been through the first three stages, um, survival, safety, and security. And then we begin to align our ego with the soul awareness and then the, the last three stages of development are all about soul activation and so at that point we unfold in a sense who we really are into that uh, larger dimension now you know we um there are many ways that we can actually get an uh, insight into that. The first, the, that larger dimension, especially through our feelings. Our feelings are, uh, are actually uh, the conscious um, uh, recognition of energy in motion, which we call emotions. And so our feelings are a way into our energy field because the soul lives uh, and our body is actually an energy field. So our feelings give us a path into... Uh, uh, our energetic reality. And if you don't, if you're brought up like many men are, not to, to deny their feelings and not be in touch with the feelings, then you're not going to get in touch with your soul. But there are other things like synchronicities. When you are aware of synchronicities, these are 
unconnected events with a common meaning. That was Carl Jung's definition. And actually what you're doing there, you're connecting into this larger reality, this larger energetic reality and other, other ways of other cracks in our ego uh, three-dimensional awareness are clairvoyance, clairaudience, mm-hmm. clairsentience, and claircognizance. The, so clairvoyance, we perceive things or events in the future. Clairaudience, we're able to hear voices uh, of non-sentient beings. And clairsentience is the ability to read the feelings of others. And then there's claircognizance, that's part, the ability to receive knowing insights. And so as you move through the stage of development and development, activate your soul, you get glimpses of that larger reality through these uh, modalities, uh, which I call like a crack in the three-dimensional ego awareness. So you, you state in this book, The Metrics of Human Consciousness, that the soul has two primary objectives and three overriding needs. What are the two primary objectives and what are the three overriding needs for our listeners? Well, um, Let's start with the three overriding needs uh, because they are uh, extremely pertinent to our daily lives. The three over, uh, overriding uh, desires, actually, as I call them in my later books, um, are self-expression, connection, and contribution. So the soul wants to live, replicate, let me put it that, this four-dimensional energetic world in our three-dimensional material world, which is a, means it wants to replicate the sense of being, um, of being able to self-express. And the soul self-expresses simply through thoughts. It creates through its thoughts. It wants to be fully who it is. When you repress who you really are in order to fit in to your environment or to get your needs met, then you're closing down the soul. The soul wants to connect in unconditional loving relationships because that's its reality in the fourth dimensional energetic world. And so we, we want, that's the second thing the soul desires. And the third thing the soul desires is to contribute. Um, that means selfless service for the for the larger good um, or the common good and, and also selfless service for towards future generations. So that is the reality of the soul at the fourth dimensional energetic world that it lives in. It wants to replicate that in our three-dimensional material world. And any fears you have about surviving, any fears you have about forming relationships, any fears you have around your own self-esteem will block the soul expression. So these are the, these are the three... Um, Three desires of the soul. Um, now, you say, um, you mentioned, uh, I think, what was the other thing? Two, two, two primary objectives of the soul. Yes. Um, I cannot remember what that uh, second objective was when I wrote about that book. And, but in the last book I wrote, uh, basically, I, I, uh, I, I was saying that the primary objective of the soul is to recreate its fourth-dimensional energetic reality in a three-dimensional material world. In other words, to create heaven on earth. Mm-hmm. So perhaps you can remind me, if you've got it right in front of you, what that other objective was. I, so I don't have it in front of me, but that's okay <laughs> because I wrote the question. It's a... I think for my listeners, 
they'll just have to get the book and read it. Yeah, we'll just there have to get go. the book and read it. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned that the biggest obstacles of our growth are our conscious and subconscious fears, the fears that prevent us yeah. from meeting the deficiency needs and the fears about making changes in our life. Now, let's face it. Um, I don't think we've ever been in a time in history where change has been uh, so prevalent, not to say that it wasn't in the past, but it certainly feels like it's moving at an uh, ever-rapid rate. How do you coach or mentor people who are dealing with these fears of the conscious and the subconscious so that we okay. can grow? Yeah. Well, um, uh, another book uh, which we haven't talked about yet, which is called Evolutionary Coaching, deals with that topic um, absolutely fully. But let me briefly say that um, during the first three stages of development, the survival, not to two years old, uh, um, conforming, that's three to seven years old, and, uh, and differentiating from eight to 24 years old, these three stages coincide with the reptilian mind being dominant, the limbic mind being dominant, and the rational mind being dominant. Of course, the rational mind will go on being dominant for the rest of our lives if we let it. However, the, if we allow it, in, in, we begin to realign with our soul mind, if you like, in the 24 to 39, and begin to activate the soul uh, in three stages thereafter. So, Basically, what stops us from fulfilling who we really are, becoming who we truly are, and living a fulfilling life are the fears that we learned about getting our needs met during mm -hmm. the first three stages of development. Mm -hmm. And why do those fears stay with us? Because the dominant mind, the reptilian mind, not to two, was growing and developing. So it was in, during those first 24 years of life, we're dealing with emergent learning. The, if you like, the the tracks on the record player or the synaptic connections in the brain are being formed as while those minds are dominant and growing. So what everything we learn from actually from 10 weeks in the womb, which is when the reptilian mind brain starts functioning up to about the age of two, everything we learned about getting our needs met, our survival needs met, is in our experiences, goes onto our hard drive basically and then everything that then the limbic mind brain, brain becomes dominant and everything that we learn from age around two to seven or eight um, big, uh, is becomes uh, hardwired into that part of our brain and then everything we learn thereafter while the while the uh, neocortex is growing and developing up to at the age of about 24, that becomes hardwired into our brain. And so from, by the time we get to 24, we're hardwired to our social, environmental, and cultural conditions in which we grew up. And then we have to undo all of that. So if we had a really tough time in our younger years, like, for example, Donald Trump, uh, we would learn that uh, it's really hard to, it's really hard to survive, it's really hard to get uh, to feel loved, and it's really hard to feel a sense of self-esteem. And we, we learn these beliefs, and therefore we comp the ego compensates for that in our later lives. I did an analysis based on Donald Trump's um, uh, leadership book, uh, Think Big, Make It Happen in Business and Life, and he has three limiting beliefs at those first three levels. He, he talk, in his book, he talks about ruthlessness, 
which is a, a survival response, uh, revenge, which is a, a second level relationship response, and image, which is a, a self-esteem response. These are what I call <laughs> limiting values. And so he learned at a young age that he wasn't getting his survival needs met, so he was going to be bloody ruthless and make sure he got them met later in life. That became hardwired. He learned that he didn't get his love needs met, and so he became very revengeful. He loves loyalty, but you cross him and he gets very revengeful uh, because he learned that uh, in, uh, in that conforming period. And then you go to the differentiating stage, like 8 to 24. He, he learned that he kept on getting the feedback that he wasn't good enough, and so image became really important to him, and and you know, and that formed his character. Now he has other values which come up in the book, uh, like uh, winning, profit, passion, loyalty, giving back, and discipline, and 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 some of these these are all positive values. But actually, when you combine some of these values with these limiting values, like combine winning with ruthlessness um, and discipline. I mean, you get a character who is not going to give in. And by the way, if you cross him, you better beware because, you know, he wants to win at any At expense. any cost, yeah. Yeah. Well, you call this personal entropy, and you say it's the amount of fear-driven energy that a person expresses in their day-to-day -day life. If you would, for our listeners... Um, mention this personal entropy. Yeah, personal entropy. So, so a little bit later on, we're going to talk about organizations and we'll talk about cultural entropy. So that's mm -hmm. the degree of dysfunction in an organization created by fear-based uh, beliefs of the leaders. Um, now, so... Each, every, every individual on the planet has some fears, and there are good fears, like, you know, my God, don't put your hand in the fire because it'll get burnt. Mm -hmm. And then there are other fears which are dysfunctional that you learn during these first 24 years of your life. You constantly got feedback from your father that you're not good enough. And so now, you uh, you know, in the world, you always want to prove that you're good enough. So you, you, you're an overachiever. Uh, you really uh, a perfectionist. Uh, you want the you know top job. Uh, you want the corner office. You want the parking place closest to the door. Um, and you don't care who you step on in order to get that because you want you have to prove to yourself this need for the self esteem which you never got when you were young. And so. That is an element of personal entropy. Now, we can measure personal entropy. Uh, we have in what I call the cultural transformation tools, uh, which I uh, discuss a little bit in the metrics of human consciousness and discuss a lot in the value-driven organization. We can actually measure personal entropy. Uh, you can measure your personal entropy by getting feedback from other people. So you pick 10 values about how you see yourself operating, and you ask 15 colleagues who work with you to pick 10 values how they see you operating. And they can pick these positive words like commitment, trust, openness, or they can pick potentially limiting words like blame, uh, demanding, uh, bureaucratic. And when we look at the proportion of votes for positive as opposed to potentially limiting values, if we add up the proportion of votes for potentially limiting values, we get what's known as the level of personal entropy. Mm. And so when we measure that, we can give that as a coaching feedback to a person. And then every year, 
repeat the same exercise, if they, if they take that feedback on board, what will happen is their level of personal entropy will gradually decline and the, the proportion of positive values will increase. And that's what we want, of course, because the personal entropy of the leaders actually creates the cultural entropy within an organization. organization. Well, we are going to speak about that here in a minute, Richard, but I want to thank you for being on with our listeners and talking about the metrics of human consciousness. Uh, I find it so enlightening to actually take things at this depth and have a dialogue, and I hope for my listeners that you enjoyed our interview today um, with Richard Barrett about his book called The Metrics of Human Consciousness. Um, Again, it's a book that's going to get you to think. It's a book that's going to get you to question. It's a book that will allow you to find ways to measure um, you know, your current psychological, or I should say your levels of consciousness. Um, it's very easy read. When I say easy, it's not, you know, this isn't a big book. This isn't thousands of pages. The book is only about 90 pages long totally. So I'd encourage you to get the book. Um, again, along with the companion book, The New Psychology of Human Well-Being. And we're going to be on in a minute with Richard uh, speaking about the values-driven organization. Thanks, Richard, for being on uh, and talking about the metrics of human consciousness. Well, thank you, Greg. I appreciate it. 